In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path to omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Okay, good evening. Sorry, I'm late. I thought at the last minute that it would be really neat to like find uh, some diagrams, some books that had images of the universe. And I went and found a couple, and then I came back and realized that the shortest moment of time would have been to look it up on uh, Google, the internet, of course. So when we get there, we can uh, do that, see what the universe looks like in the Buddhist world. So we begin with uh, chapter 19, which is called the shortest unit of time. We have a couple of segments left in this section, the section of the book about time. And in this chapter, we have a very long and drawn out and repetitive description almost obsessive sort of description of the shortest moment of time, whether it's one 365th of a finger snap, or it's 65th of a finger snap, or the blink of an eye, or something like that. But I think the shortest unit of time is basically the amount of time that we'll spend on this chapter, which just ended. <laughs> Any comments about that chapter? I didn't really think it was. I mean, the only. Okay, let's get serious, if possible. There were two things that were interesting in this chapter. One is that they have a chapter on it that goes on endlessly repeating the same thing for some reason, even citing people who don't believe in time as insisting that there must be a shortest period of time, moment of time for some strange reason, reason. But actually there was a fascinating thing in it in, on page, on our page uh, 268, which is the second page of this chapter, the shortest unit of time. Here's a quote from, uh, it says Dharmakirti and Chandrakirti. The Kirti brothers, the famous Kirti brothers, also understood moment in similar terms. And, and similar terms refers to the section before, so maybe we can read that. I should. So the auto commentary. The quote before that, which starts on the page prior to 67, 
The auto commentary states in accordance with that analysis, the smallest limit of form is the subtle particle. The limit of time is a moment. The limit of names is a letter as in the word oxen. <laughs> I don't know if that does it for you, but didn't really do much for me. The word oxen, anyway. Again, what is the measure of a moment? When conditions assemble, it is the obtainment of a phenomena itself. I guess the amount of time it takes for a phenomena to obtain itself, to sort of be what it is, come into itself. Or when a phenomena moves, it is the time taken for it to move from one subtle particle to another subtle particle. That doesn't make any sense. A phenomena moves from one subtle particle to another subtle particle, so the phenomena is separate from the particles. Abhidharmakas, which is a branch of Hasidic Jews, says just as a single finger snap of a strong man lasts 65 moments. So back to the Kirti brothers who understand moment in similar terms, for example, exposition of valid cognition, which is Dharmakirti's most famous text on logic and cognition, states, the time taken for a particle to turn or spin is asserted to construe a moment that is the shortest discrete unit of time. Thus, the duration of a single subtle particle changing its locus or turning over is the shortest moment of time. Now, where did they get this idea of particles turning or spinning? How did they come up with that? Particles. Or even spinning. that there is a particle? Aren't these people that don't really believe in particles? At least one of them? Yeah. Yeah, it's just... Well, yeah. And then they say that these particles, they don't believe in spin. Isn't that what atoms do? Don't atoms spin? So that got me wondering, like, what is the moment of time in, in Western science? Did anyone see what I sent out earlier about time, about the atomic Based on cesium. Wasn't that also part of what uh, Emily sent us a few weeks ago about those standards oh. so they were way 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 ahead of their time did they use statistics too probabilities it's a little hard to hear you but i think we got the gist yes spin is in quantum particles time Spin as in quantum particles. Yeah, that's what. So, how did they come up with this idea of spin? So, anyone did? Did anyone read what a second is? It's it's the atomic second is defined as exactly the duration of nine trillion, no billion, one hundred ninety-two million six hundred thirty one thousand seven hundred and seventy periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. And 
And and who wouldn't have thought of that as being the right basis, by the way, right? I know. It was adopted in 1967 when it became feasible to define the second based on fundamental properties of nature with cesium clocks because the speed of Earth's rotation varies and is slowing, slowing ever so slightly. A leap second is added at irregular intervals to civil time to keep clocks in sync with Earth's rotation. And then there's international atomic time, and uh, which is a system of consisting of 270 laboratory constructed atomic clocks placed around the world. And singles from these atomic clocks are transmitted to the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in uh, Paris which uses them to form international atomic time. And uh, since 72 leap seconds have been added to the time scale in order to produce coordinated universal time, the time scale used globally and most closely linking atomic time to Earth, Earth's actual time scale. The need for additions of leap seconds is determined by the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service located at the Paris Observatory. Cesium fountain clocks now provide the international system of units second to an unprecedented level of accuracy. These clocks are predicted to be off by less than one second in more than 50 million years. That's sort of upsetting, isn't it, that they're going to be off by a whole second? <laughs> sometime in the next 50 million years guess we can't really set our watches to it after all <laughs> <laughs> what's sort of interesting though is that the notion of time is tied to material yeah earth's planets suns and cesium it used to be ammonia and then they changed it to cesium and so the implication is that perhaps on a different planet, you would have a different system of time, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just, That's it's kind of interesting that even though it's a construct and all that, but the notion of tying it down to something material is sort of funny. <clears throat> but I mean, it started out by like saying, what's, what's a year, what's a day? And then dividing the day by uh, 24 hours, and those by 60 minutes, and those by 60 seconds. And of course, all that was sort of more based on observation of external phenomena, I guess, also. Uh, suns and moons and light and dark and all that. So, so how did they go from that, which sort of makes sense, right? You know, you have like the subjective reference of... Yeah, from a farmer point of view, it works very well, right? Yeah, of the solar system and the, our, you know, version of the solar system here on this planet, this amazing planet. So how did they go from there to cesium atoms and decide that, what, what was the number? It's like, it's exactly the duration of 9 billion periods of radiation. Of I think so my Wi-Fi is finally working. Um, yeah, Cynthia, this is similar to what I sent out a couple of weeks ago. And 
my understanding is they had the second established based on the astrological movement of things, but that was inconsistent because it's getting slower and it's getting slower at an inconsistent rate. It's not reliable. Um, if you do it from the rotation of the earth and you cut, cut down that way to a piece of time, this is the size of a second, it's not perfectly accurate. It changes as the earth continues to rotate. So I think they came up with the cesium thing because that was the reliable, that was the thing that was on earth that moved, that, that um, vibrated reliably in this, pretty much the same amount of time as an astrological second. So I think they probably tested a bunch of different things and finally landed on, okay, 9 billion um, vibrations of this atom is extremely close to the astrological second. So instead of relying on the astrological second, we're going to now say that this is what a second is. Wait a second. I have a question. <laughs> At one point you said... They started out with the Earth and the rotation and the day and they derive and the second and determined that since the Earth was rotating or or circling the Sun on a unreal uh, on a uh, at a different rate over time, it's rate it's deterior. I guess getting slower is that the deal? Yes. Yeah. Someday time may just come to a standstill when the earth stops rotating or something that's a scary day what do we have what happens we all fly off or something anyway but uh and then you said so so then they looked for something that was uh, more stable in its activity that approximated the second and then you said they found out that nine billion so how did, <laughs> how did they how did they think that that was like a simple way of comparing to the, you know, wouldn't it be like, well, yeah. maybe, maybe 3 million of some other atom would, would. Like, how did they come up with cesium? Like who, who said, yeah, that may hey, be, let's look at cesium. I, it may be that that, that that's actually more measurable than some of the others. The others may vibrate many more times than that in a second. I that think you have probably... to you have to do some research for us and find yeah. out why cesium. Well, do. Is it called cause it seizes the the time? It seizes time? Like seize the day or cesium named after Caesar? Somebody must have had like a some stock market investment in cesium, I think. And they decided to use that. Anyway, <laughs> fixation on the so shortest moment of time does doesn't really make much sense. Uh, the next the next chapter twenty is positing subtle impermanence, which uh, is is posited. Impermanence is posited on the basis of whether something undergoes change, and conditioned phenomena are subject to change owing to their causes and conditions. So, if something that has causes and conditions, it's subject to change, and if it does not, it is not. The fact of such conditioned phenomena being subject to change is primarily a function of the productive causes that produce them. As such, all conditioned phenomena continuously undergo change without remaining static for even a single moment, whatever the hell a moment is. For example, owing to the change of a tree's leaves, they fall to the ground with the arrival of cold in winter, etc. Um, 
therefore they change, they transform moment by moment, and even though the eye does not see it, in reality they continuously, all things continuously transform. If subtle change did not exist moment by moment, then coarse transformation also would not arise. Then we, then we get into the topic of, so um, what is the nature of the arising, abiding, ceasing, and destruction of phenomena? And who thinks what about that important topic? With respect to how the four characteristics of conditioned phenomena are understood, the Vaibhashikas, for example, assert that when the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena rising, enduring, and disintegrating illustrate the conditioned nature of something, such as the form aggregate, they do not do so on the basis of something arising and so on. They do so by way of demonstrating that the given phenomena possesses characteristics such as arising that are distinct from it. Did that make any sense? So phenomena possess something that's different from themselves, which is arising, abiding, and ceasing. And um, well, maybe maybe if we read further, it'll make sense. Therefore, they don't assert these characteristics to be the action of arising and so on, but rather as substantially real, distinct entities that are the agents that generate, that endure, and that disintegrate. So it seems like we have three agents for every phenomena, the arising, abiding, and ceasing of phenomena. And the funny thing is that this doesn't really matter to us in the slightest. So none of us are really phased one way or another by what they decide. So to some extent, all of these topics are a little bit extraneous and not that uh, crucial, but they're slightly interesting, so maybe we'll go through them quickly. Um, therefore, they don't assert these characteristics to, to be the actual action of arising and so on, but rather a substantially real distinct entities that are the agents that generate, endure, and disintegrate. So although these four characteristics just went from three to four, do exist simultaneously for conditioned phenomena, such as a material entity, when they occur on a specific basis, they maintain that first the action of arising occurs, next enduring, then decaying, then the action of disintegration occurs in a sequential order, as, as uh, we seem to observe. As for the four characteristics of arising and so on themselves, as mentioned earlier, they do not view these in terms of the action of arising and so forth. Rather, they posit these in terms of substantially real distinct entities that are the agent of generation. So this is going back to our non-associated formative formations, where the Vaibhashikas view them to be phenomena. So arising as a phenomena. And so along with the um, coming together of the particles of matter of different types, you have an arising particle. You have an enduring particle. Well, I don't know if they're not made out of particles because they're neither matter nor mind, but you have the arising phenomenon and so forth. 
Uh, so these are the Vaibhashikas who take things extremely literally. They were the brunt of every joke. They were the straight man in every joke set up ever since the time of the Buddha. Um, furthermore, they interpret conditioned phenomena in terms of produced through the aggregation of cause and conditions. That is to say, in terms of activities associated with active agents. So from the treasure of knowledge, all the comment here arose, or owing to arising, it generates here, owing to arising, it generates that phenomena. Owing to enduring, it causes it to abide. So these phenomena arising, abiding, and so on, act upon other phenomena, causing them to arise, abide, and disintegrate or decay. And the explanation of that text is, here they assert the characteristics of conditioned phenomena are by nature different substances from the phenomena themselves, strangely. Therefore, those characteristics are not posited in terms of extremely short moments. The auto-commentary states the Bhagavan teaches that the continuum of conditioned phenomena is a conditioned phenomena and a dependent origination up to, uh, presumably indicating that there was the repetition of a formulaic phrase uh, altered slightly by the uh, re replacement of one factor in that phrase. These three are the characteristics of dependent, of, sorry, of conditioned phenomena. But not just for a moment, for arising and so on, do not manifest for just a moment doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So Trantikas come in, however, and try to make sense of this, and they say, it's not the case that conditioned phenomena arise in the first moment, then endure in the intervening, then disintegrate through contact with the cause of disintegration. For the Sautrantikas, the very instant the first moment of any given phenomena came into being, it did so as something that does not remain still even for a single moment no matter how short that moment is. And given that the first moment has the nature of something that does not remain static even for a moment, the fact of it not remaining for a second moment takes place. Therefore, they maintain that the specific character of the first moment not remaining even at its own time, even at its own time was created, even not remaining even at its own time was created by the very same productive cause that produced the phenomena in the first place. Maybe even as its own time. So too, they view the characteristics of conditioned phenomena such as arising so on to be the actions of arising, not phenomena, but actions, powers, energies. Um, So they have a sort of normal, more what we would consider to be common idea of uh, the inner activities of these phenomena arising, abiding, and so forth. At the end of the paragraph, however, we get this sentence. It says, the Sautrantukas view these three characteristics to be simultaneous and not different in substance from conditioned phenomena. So they're not different phenomena and they're simultaneous. So phenomena arise, abide, cease, and disintegrate simultaneously. I thought you would all be terrified when you heard that, but 
I don't see much reaction. Uh, skipping the quote, uh, so too insofar as something as a conditioned phenomenon, it exists in the nature of disintegration from the very instant of its coming into being. Uh, there is no such, the quote, there is no such thing called impermanence only that will come into being subsequently. The very fact that functional things endure only for a moment this alone is what is meant by impermanence. This has been explained numerous times. You should have understood this by now. Why do you keep forgetting and asking? Thus the Sautrantikas are different from the Vibhashikas in asserting that even a thing that does not remain for longer than the duration of the shortest moment possesses all three characteristics. Uh, skipping the quote. Just like the Sautrantikas, the Chittamatrans, and Madhyamakas, too, view the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena arising and during disintegrating as actions, not as phenomena, and also as existing simultaneously. I didn't know the Madhyamakas view them as existing simultaneously. That's sort of illogical. And I didn't think they were that illogical, but. Uh, for example, the compendium of bases, which is the, what is it, the Vastu Samgraha by uh, Dharmakirti? No, Sangha. The impermanence of conditioned phenomena will be understood by means of the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena as transformation, derising, and during disintegrating. These three characteristics should be understood in dependence on the two continua of conditioned entities. So here we get into continuum. It was slightly interesting. As such, there is one, a continuum that is the con continuation of one life to another. And two, a continuum that is the continuum, continuation rather, of one moment to another. Regarding the first continuum, taking birth as the type of sentient being is arising and dying at the end is disintegration the phase of youth and so on that occurs between the first and last is changed through enduring, etc. Then the next paragraph, then regarding the momentary nature of the second continuum, the newest arising of conditioned entities is arising, and the moment of rising that does not abide beyond that is disintegration. Enduring is just a moment of, of arising is enduring in just a moment of rising. Transformation has two types, transformation into the same entity and transformation into distinct entities. Transformation into the same entity is the disintegration of the conditioned entity within the same continuum. In other words, the things that are around us in your rooms and in front of you disintegrate instantaneously and then arise again as the next moment of the same, the continuum of that same phenomena. So the chair produces the next moment of the chair and so on. Transformation into distinct entities is the disintegration into different continuums, such as when the chair is burned by a fire. But since a transformed body does not exist separately from its enduring state, 
these two merge as one and are designated a single characteristic that it didn't make a whole lot of uh, sense. But anyway, in brief, impermanence is defined as that which is momentary. Momentariness in the context of the definition of impermanence refers to not enduring for a second moment beyond the time of its occurrence. Not remaining for a brief period is not the meaning of momentariness. Thus, for this moment, there is a range of different lengths of duration in the case of a year. For example, there are 12 months from the, from the time of its occurrence. And when 12 months have passed, the year no longer remains. This was an interesting little section. Similarly, when not enduring for a second moment beyond its time of occurrence is applied to a day, the time of its occurrence occurs, sorry, lasts for the duration of 24 hours for a day and a night applied to a phenomenon that lasts only for a period of a minute. Its duration becomes that of a minute. <laughs> so uh, they, they take these uh, non-associated formations or uh, collective phenomena such as days, hours, minutes, and years and talk about the arising and disintegration of those question does a century for example exist for 100 years are we in the 21st century are we going to be in the 21st century for 100 years if it does not so exist this would contradict the assertion that a year exists until the completion of 12 months months if on the other hand a century does exist until 100 years are complete it would contradict the assertion that it is impermanent and that it does not exist for more than one moment Response, the objection stems from the fault of not knowing how to posit a continuum. So we have this subtle feature of phenomena called a continuum. So a century is a continuum of 100 years, and a year is a continuum of 12 months and so forth. And uh, every moment is subtle, subtly impermanent but they create the next moment of their continuum. So every moment within the, the 21st century produces the next moment of the 21st century until the next century. Not very relevant or helpful. And on the next page. In terms of that definition, is there something unique about the last moment of a day, week, month, year, century, and it, where it's creating not the next moment of its continuum, but the next moment of a new. Yeah, it's the second type of transformation. It transforms into a distinct entity. In this case, the next century. You know, and it uses a fictitious entity, a century, we would say, is a fictitious entity. But, and we would say, well, a chair is, you know, a more real entity, but then you could argue that a chair is as fictitious as a century. And then you could say that you have a century chair. I mean, in a sense that they're saying that something different is happening in that one moment. It's really a construct of our minds that says it's different, right? It's in not. that case, yeah. In that case, yeah. It's not a distinct entity unless you think that centuries are entities. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you put the chair in the fire, then it, it turns into ash. And we consider that a distinct entity. Maybe some people don't consider that a distinct entity. Right. Okay. 
uh, skipping the next paragraph, going to, in general, there's two types of impermanence. Impermanence in terms of a continuum and momentary impermanence. Skipping the quote of these two, the first is called coarse impermanence, and the second is subtle. To illustrate these two types of impermanence by taking Devadatta, the famous Devadatta, the cousin of the Buddha that tried to kill him. Uh, Devadatta not remaining after death is extremely coarse impermanence. Since even a cowherd can ascertain this fact, but sense perceptions, the proverbial cowherd, <laughs> everybody needs a cowherd. <laughs> what would our proverbial cowherd be today? would be like uh, a lumberjack or a, um, a... Well, in some cases, it would be something that's not PC to say, like, you know, an idiot or, a, you know, all these things that you're not supposed to, terms you're not supposed to use anymore, but... Simpleton, simpleton. A simpleton, a fool, whatever. Well, cow, no, they say that cowards possess enormous common sense. They know how to herd their cows. It's, it's a very skilled job, but it's the job that every, almost everybody had in those days. So, right. Does it doesn't require right? I mean, they have special skills, but so it's not a not stupid by any means. Anyway, uh -huh. <laughs> we argue about uh, nothing. Well, clearly, there's some reason why they chose that as opposed to saying, you know, any, any ordinary Joe, right? That is the ordinary Joe. Compared to this, the fact of Devadatta not remaining from the time of his first moment to the second moment is subtle. Subtler. Compared to this, the fact of Devadatta disintegrating right before your eyes, even at the time of his first moment, is even more subtle. Therefore, in order to cognize subtle impermanence, it must be preceded in general by comprehending the fact, of course impermanence so subtle impermanence is a, a logical inferential cognition or deduction from the basis of course impermanence um, skipping ahead let's see um, Okay, so let's uh, go to this quote. After a, the quote from Asanga's Yogachar grounds about the eight times of a human being, the eight periods, the text says, in general, when impermanence pertains to a coarse basis, such as the final moment of the flame of a butter lamp, which I think is similar to what Cynthia was just getting at, and something ascertained by direct perception, it constitutes coarse impermanence. In contrast, when it pertains to a subtle basis and needs to be ascertained through reasoning, it'll subtle impermanence. Um, they go on and on about these topics. These are the most long-winded guys I've ever experienced. The next paragraph, the fact that all conditioned phenomena were created in the nature of disintegration by the very productive causes that brought them into being in the first place, and that they do not remain in the second moment beyond the time they come into being are stated in Sutra on Gaganavarna's patient training. <laughs> it's the old version of ER back at the time of the Buddha, I think. Uh, these phenomena rise in the first moment, disintegrate in just that moment, and do not exist in the second moment. But um, 
the interesting point is that disintegration is programmed in. Disintegration is not a separate act, uh, entity or energy. Um, similarly, in Dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition, Pramanavartika states, because it has no other cause, disintegration is related to the entity itself. Here, Dharmakirti states that the disintegration of a product exists from the very moment of its existence and is related intrinsically to its very nature. The disintegration of a product is generated not by some other third factor, but by the very cause that gave rise to its existence as such. The very cause that produced it also generates its disintegration. So that's a sort of important and key fundamental part of the whole system of impermanence. And we'll skip the, the back and forth here of the syllogism and the, uh, the opponent. And that's it. That's the end of uh, subtle impermanence. Part five, the cosmos and its inhabitants. Here we have the Buddhist version of the cosmology. And uh, as before, let's skip the introduction, which repeats everything in the text and dive into the text instead. So chapter 21, the cosmos and its inhabitants in Abhidharma in this uh, text and in general, the uh, tradition of Buddhism has two main, uh, sorry, actually uh, three main cosmological systems. It has the Abhidharma system that's common to the early schools. And then it has the Vajrayana system and then it has the Kala Chakra system. The Kala Chakra system is unique from the Vajrayana, general Vajrayana system. And to simplify this presentation focuses on just the first and the third of those. So the cosmos and its inhabitants and Abhidharma, generally speaking, divergent views evolved among early Indian philosophers who disagreed in the way external world systems and their inhabitants rose, arose and were destroyed. Among them were many non-Buddhists, such as Vaishesha goes, who asserted that before this present world system was formed, many subtle particles, such as those of earth, water, fire, when existed separately without disintegration in empty, vacant space. Then the god Maheshwara reflected, I should create the cosmos within this empty space. So those are uh, theists, and they assert that there's a creator intelligence that creates the world. Um, on the bottom of the page, among them, those who assert a creator of the cosmos propose the following logical proof for the existence of a creator the subject, the dwellings and so forth of the world predicate are preceded by the mind of a creator. And the reason that they give is because they operate in a temporarily ordered manner, like a carpenter's ads. What the hell is an ads? Anybody know what an ads is? Do we have any carpenters here? It's like an ax. It's like an axe, thank you. 
Except it splat so you chisel away wood. Uh, so it's, it's not this way, it's this way. Uh, oh. Yeah, more, more of a chisel, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thank you. It's the most interesting thing so far. Uh, because they operate in temporally ordered manner, like Carpenter's adds, they possess specific shapes like a clay vase, and they are capable of function like a vase. Although other types of logical proof exist, these constitute the principal arguments. If the above reasons proposed by non-Buddhists merely establish in general the fact that dwellings and so forth of the world arise owing to the existence of a prior mind, then this point is already established among Buddhists. For Buddhists already accept that the world arises from karma, which is the mental factor of intention. So he's trying to trying to uh, be like ecumenical here and forge some uh, agreement with the non-Buddhists, where Buddhists say that, okay, yeah, the world arises from a prior mind in, in a way, but not very much different than what the theists are saying. If these proofs are supposed to demonstrate, however, if these proofs are supposed to demonstrate that things were created by a permanent mind, since the existence of such a permanent mind is impossible, the examples cited become untenable. So a permanent mind is, is impossible. Alternatively, if the claim is that the proofs establish the simple fact that a creator must precede the existence of these entities, one would then have to admit that the very creator that is said to precede all these things must also have another prior creator. If this is admitted, it would contradict the assertion that the creator is permanent and self-arisen and consequently the very reasons one has proposed would become inconclusive. Oh, skipping the quote. Um, also, if a creator of the cosmos that is permanent and self-arisen is asserted since there can be no change in the nature of something that is permanent, there could be no differentiation at all between its phases of producing or not producing effects. So when they say permanent, they really mean permanent and they mean unchanging. And so if you say, well, God is permanent, but he created the earth on the first day and he created the animals on the second day, blah, blah, blah. So he changed from day to day and therefore his or she is not permanent. Um, there could be no differentiation at all between the phase of producing or not producing. This implies that such an entity would be devoid of the characteristics of a cause since it would lack the following basic criterion. What it is absent when it is absent, an effect cannot arise. Moreover, since such a curator, creator of the cosmos is itself unarisen, is illogical. It is illogical that the entire cosmos, the world system, and so forth is created by such a being. In brief, given that things originate from the assembly of diverse cause and conditions, Buddhists demonstrate the untenability of things being the creation of a single creator. Everybody, all Buddhists seem to rally around this and agree upon this. It's one of the one things that they all agree on. Uh, let's see. Uh, skipping a few paragraphs. 
skipping the quotes, skipping the paragraph that begins with, therefore, Buddhists do not accept this cosmos of external worlds and their inhabitants to be established from the prior design of creator. Skipping that, and then there are numerous texts. Skipping that and going to the next paragraph, which in our printed version is on page 296. In brief, according to the viewpoints of Buddhist schools, common shared world systems come into being from subtle particles of earth, water, fire, and wind, which are the basis for the initial formation of the universe together with the collective karma of sentient beings. And on the basis of the specific karma of individual beings, their experiences of happiness and suffering also come to arise. So Buddhists explain the evolution of the cosmos on the basis of the cycle of dependent origination alone in terms of substantial causality and cooperative conditionality with regard to our current cosmos. Buddhists explain that the external world was formed first and that sentient beings, the inhabitants, evolved later. Which is... It's an interesting point, like remember that, and we're going to come back to that. Which was first, the, the environment or its inhabitants, the container or the container? Doesn't that contradict what it says about the collective karma of sentient beings being involved? Yeah, so it says uh, this, from the subtle particles of earth and so forth, which are the basis for the initial formation of the universe, together with the collective karma of sentient beings. Now, you could, I guess, argue that the karma of sentient beings was operating before the sentient beings appeared, but that would be a little odd. Plus, there's something else that we're going to see in a few moments, which does not jive very well with that. Okay, the formation of world systems with respect to this process of causal independent origination, rather. A song and others speak of the three conditions, the absence of prior design, impermanence, and potentiality. A song explains these conditions clearly on the basis of sutras, such as the famous Rice Seedling Sutra, the Compendium of Abhidharma, which is by a song of states. What are the features of the conditions from which things arise? They arise from the condition of the absence of prior design. Nobody designed. They arise from the condition of permanence, impermanence, and they arise from the condition of potentiality. He provi they provide another quote that gives the same thing. Skipping that, passages such as these provide an important summary of how this world system came into being through the power of the three conditions. And it is declared that Buddhists do not accept the view that this universe was created by an omnipotent being. Text of a Sanghavasabandhu organize the meaning of the sutras, such as the following from the Rice Seedling Sutra into three parts, and explain their meaning in terms of these three parts. The Rice Seedling Sutra states, dependent origination is like this. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. With ignorance as condition, formations come to be. When this exists, that comes to be, presents the arising of things from the condition of the absence of prior design. With the arising of this, that 
arises presents arising from the condition of impermanence and with ignorance of condition formations come to be presents the condition of potentiality so these three aspects of the formation of world system first the condition of the absence of prior design the meaning of the first statement the condition that external and internal things originated from the absence of prior design is saying that this cosmos composed of external world systems and their inhabitants did not come into being through the prior design of a creator, but rather through the power of their own productive causes and conditions. Hence the sutra statement when this exists, that comes to be. Things come into being through the dependent origination of the causal process, not through the power of some alternate external agency that is not subsumed within the domain of causes and conditions. So too, this world system and its inhabitants did not come into being spontaneously devoid of causes and conditions. Condition of impermanence. The meaning of the second statement that things originated from the condition of permanence is this merely to assert that external internal things originated from causes and conditions is inadequate. For the very causes from which they originated must themselves be conditioned impermanent phenomena. It is illogical that effects that are impermanent originate from permanent phenomena. And this is the significance of the statement on the second condition. Since permanent phenomena are devoid of effective function, non-permanent phenomena are non-things. They do not perform functions either sequentially or simultaneously. They are incapable of producing any effect. Similarly, it's an established logical truth that if something cannot be impacted, helped, or harmed by any other phenomena, it too will have no capacity to help or harm any other thing. Therefore, so long as something is a cause from which external or internal phenomena arise, it must necessarily be a conditioned impermanent phenomena. This necessity is indicated by the second condition, which is stated in the sutra with this arising that arises. The meaning of arising is brought out with special focus. Potentiality, the meaning of the third statement that external and internal things are originated from the condition of potentiality is this. It's not adequate for a cause from which things arise to be merely a condition, a permanent entity. It must be commensurate with the effects it produces. Such a cause must have the potential to produce a specific effect. To underline this point, the phrase the conditioned the condition of potentiality is applied, therefore the sutra states with ignorance as its condition formations come to be. And the Sangha sums it up in a quote there. Um, skipping the quote, in brief, in the Buddhist system, it's unacceptable that something arises without a cause or that the cosmos is established from the prior design of a creator or that a result arises from a permanent cause and so on. Instead, Buddhists explain the unique path of causal dependent origination where the cause and result must be of similar type and diverse results arise from diverse causes and conditions. Now, get into the details as for how the Buddhist Abhidharma texts explain the formation of a worlds of world systems. A clear presentation exists in Vasubandhu's treasury of knowledge auto-commentary owing to the power of the karma of sentient beings, the wind mandala that is supported in space comes into being. Poof. 
was was there some cause for that ram yam kam yeah was there some cause for that its height is 600 trillion is that right is that trillion 100,000 million billion trillion yeah that's trillion 600 trillion leagues under the sea uh, no leagues or in sanskrit yojanas in breath it is immeasurable so its height is measurable its breath is infinite and it is hard such that even manifold great vajras which are the hardest substance in the universe could not destroy it the mandala of wind is indestructible cannot be destroyed wind. so it says it's it's supported in space what is it supported on is it on turtles or yeah i was i was saying the same thing yeah it's a little bit of a introduction of a of a first cause there uh, above that water forms to a height of 11 million yojana the term mandala should be applied here to water as well owing to the karma of sentient beings clouds gather in that wind mandala in a continuous isha dara rain fills falls rather forming a water mandala 11 million yojana in depth why does that water not overflow <laughs> such a practical question why did they ask where the hell did the wind mandala come? how about overflow what yeah overflow what is a good question. i think overflow the wind mandala but i don't know some say this is due to the power of the karma of sentient beings it's just the way it is <laughs> for example it's like food and drink for that which is consumed does not descend into the intestines when it is not yet digested <laughs> Other asserts that others assert that water is held by wind, just as rice sacks hold rice, so it doesn't overflow the mandala of wind. Um, again, when the winds, winds derived from the force of the karma of sentient beings completely churn the water, the upper level turns to gold, in the manner of cream forming on boiled milk. From then on, the water mandala is eight hundred thousand, I guess, yojanas in depth. The remainder has turned into gold what is the remainder the upper layer of the water mandala measuring 320,000 yojana becomes the foundation with the nature of gold the height of the water and gold has already been explained <laughs> thus first the wind mandala is formed then the water mandala and the earth mandala merge in sequence and the, the gold is the golden ground the earth is the golden ground you know when you do the mandala offering the earth is the golden ground pure and powerful you all know that right you don't find any ordinary earthen rocks here right? even if you were to spend the time looking for them initially the lower foundation exists as empty vacant space exists then a smooth rising wind that acts as a portent of the formation of world systems condenses over many years to form the lower foundation of the external environment the name of this wind is smooth one its shape is spherical its color is variegated and its essential nature is the eight basic substances such as earth um, subtle particle such as the earth subtle particle and so forth but since wind is the dominant element 
uh, or particle in that collection. It is called the wind mandala. Above the wind mandala, clouds form in space, and from them rain descends continuously for many years until the water mandala forms. It, it, isn't the bing bang theory, isn't there some idea that after the earth cooled, it rained for a really long time? I seem to remember like movies taken during the the creation of the earth and there was at the beginning there was a lot of rain no any of you scientists okay uh then owing to the water model being agitated by wind for a long time the earth model progressively develops it's being whipped into like foam and the foam condenses as before Rain descends continuously on the water and earth mandalas and in dependence on that, the great outer ocean forms. Then Mount Meru forms in dependence on the supreme elements of that great ocean being agitated by wind. The seven mountains such as Ugumdara, Ugumdara form from the intermediate elements being churned by wind and the four continents and the subcontinents form through minor elements being churned by the wind. Thus it is said that Mount Meru comes to be formed at the center of the four great continents and the four directions and the eight subcontinents and the four subdirections with the sun, moon, and stars circling them. The great continent to the south is the continent of Jambu Dwipa, our home. The texts explain that the great ocean fills the space between the continents and all of this exists supported or suspended in empty space by the wind mandala. 1,000 arrays of the four continents, the sun, moon, Mount Meru, and so on, is designated 1,000 world systems of a chiliocosm. <laughs> it's chilly. 1,000 such chiliocosms are called 1 million world systems of a dichiliocosm. 1,000 such dichiliocosms are called 1 billion world systems of a trichiliocosm. In brief, the one billion world systems, that is, from the four continents together with Mamero to the Brahma realm, are called one billion world systems of a trichiliocosm. That these world systems come to be ultimately destroyed together as well as formed together in the beginning is stated in the treasury of knowledge. So here's the full explanation of what a trichiliocosm is which you may have come across in uh, your readings of, of the Buddhist tradition. There's reference often to the trichiliocosm. Uh, from the treasury of knowledge, 1,000 arrays of the four continents, sun, the moon, Mount Meru, the desire god abodes in the mundane heaven of Brahma are asserted to be a chiliocosm, etc. Skipping that, the extensive display sutra Lalita Vistra, I think, states that the one billion world systems from the form continents up to Akanishta are the one billion world systems of a trichiliocosm. And the world system of the four continents and so on, there are one billion world systems of four continents, one billion oceans, one billion surrounding regions, great surrounding regions, one billion heavens of Chatra Maharajakayaka, etc. <laughs> Skipping the rest of that tongue twister. In general, Buddhists and others speak of the universe in terms of the three realms, the desire, form, and formless realms. These three are characterized in their respective order as principally dependent on external objects of sensual desire, such as form, sound, and so on. 
on the internal bliss of absorption for the form realm. The first was the desire realm and being disenchanted even by the bliss of absorption on tranquility permeated by the feeling of equanimity alone for the formless realm. Thus the cosmos is explained in terms of three distinct realms. If these three realms are explained further by means of their body, feelings, and resources, the desire realm is characterized as follows. The body is coarse and experiences predominantly a mixture of pleasure and pain. And beings depend mainly on coarse food. The form realm is characterized thus. Beings there have bodies in the nature of light. Their experience is permeated mostly by feelings of bliss, and they do not rely on coarse food. The formless realm is characterized as follows. Beings there do not possess a coarse physical body that symbolizes their nature as sentient beings. They abide with feelings of equanimity, transcending feelings of pain and pleasure. They do not depend on coarse food, but live their entire life in meditative concentration, focused solely on objects such as limitless space. This is the formless realm. Uh, I skipped the form realms. The form realm is characterized beings there have bodies in the nature of light. Their experience is permeated mostly by feelings of bliss and they do not rely on coarse food. And then I read the formless realm up through, uh, let's see, they live their entire life in meditative concentration focused solely on objects such as limitless space which resemble the cessation of all mental engagement in other objects. It is stated that beings who live in the higher levels of the desire realm and beings who live in both the form and formless realms are celestial beings. So the God realm extends from the top of the desire realm through the form realm and into the formless realm. Further in the treasury and its auto-commentary presentations are found on the size of the sun, moon, and earth, the distance between them, how nine day arises, the sun revolving, as well as explanations of many phenomena that are directly observable, such as the length of the days in summer and winter and so on. Combining these Abhidharma ex explanations with the science of astronomy presented in the Kala Chakra Tantra, classical Buddhist scholars in both India and Tibet were able to produce calendars and almanacs, as well as make accurate predictions about solar and lunar eclipses and so on. That's pretty neat. They could predict eclipses. An account similar to one presented in the Treasure of Knowledge, how first the external world of Jambatwipa, which is our southern continent, was formed, and then how the inhabitants, sentient beings, gradually emerge, occurs also in the scriptures of the Vinaya. Interestingly, in the Vinaya, in addition to all the rules and detailed descriptions of the rules for monks and nuns, they have all this other stuff on the cosmology, and then they have also the history of the Buddha's life and the lives of the seven um, Sangha leaders after the Buddha and uh, the development of the Buddhist order. Anyway, so here we have... Um, <clears throat> an excerpt from the detailed explanations of discipline, Vinaya, what is it, Vinaya Vibhanga or something. Monks, there was a time when the world first formed. After it formed, beings from the heaven of clear light died, owing to the exhaustion of their lifespan, karma, and merit, and they arrived in this world in accordance with their fortune to be human. So earlier we read that first the container was formed and then the beings were formed. 
And here we're reading that this realm was populated by beings from other realms who died and took rebirth here. From the upper realms, they die, and then they're born into the lower realms, such as the animals and the humans, in realms such as ours. Uh, they arrived in this world in accordance with the, their fortune to be human. Their physical form arose from the mind, lacking nothing in complete faculties. They were in possession of all primary and secondary limbs with pure features, defined complexions, and innate radiance. Further, they were capable of flight. Is that what it says? They were capable of flight. Yeah, that's what it says. <laughs> no, I think they, they, they they're, fly. there's a lot of stories about how there were all these, you know, cities that they had that they lost yeah. over time, right? They were sustained by the food of joy endowed with long life and capable of living for a very long time, which is being endowed with long life. And uh, they didn't eat real food. They just lived on joy. At the time, the sun and the moon had not been formed. <laughs> and even the stars had not yet appeared in the world system. Night and day did not exist. Moments, even the shortest moment, minutes and hours did not exist. There were no females. There were no males and sentient beings were identified simply as beings. Then one voracious being took earth nectar on his fingertips and experienced its taste. And the more he tasted it, the more he desired, and the more he desired, the more he ate through treating it as coarse food. Why did that guy do that? Isn't this just like another story of the like, downfall of human? Yeah, it sounds just like the Eden thing. Yeah, eating the apple. Other beings observed him experience the taste of earth nectar on his fingertips, and that the more he tasted, the more he desired, and the more he desired, the more he ate, through treating it as coarse food. After observing this, these beings took earth nectar on their fingertips and experienced this taste and so forth. Because such beings ate the earth nectar, treating it as coarse food, their bodies became solid and heavy, and their radiance disappeared, and darkness descended on the world. Monks, when darkness arose in the world, the sun and moon naturally arose, as well as the stars, night and day, moments, hours, minutes, hours, months, half months, seasons, and years. Sutra goes on to state how the complexion of those who ate more food deteriorated, whereas the complexion of those who ate less remained clear. <laughs> The less food you eat, the less acne, yeah. Thus, different complexions arose due to eating different amounts. Uh, skipping, the, let's see, the rest of that paragraph. After that uncultivated sala rice grew, grain grew, salu rice grain grew with excellent color, excellent aroma, and excellent taste. When harvested in the morning, it grew back in the evening. When harvested even it grew back in the morning thus it was harvested again and again harvesting when it grew back until it disappeared the solo rice grain that had not been cultivated by sentient beings was consumed regularly and it turns beans produced feces and urine within their bodies male and female organs developed they engaged in sexual union distinct moral and immoral conduct arose families began to emerge <laughs> the development of humanity of society whatever 
skipping the quotes. You know, it's just like another biblical creation story. Uh, let's see. Let's see. So at the end of this chapter, it says to summarize, Buddhist texts are in broad agreement with the general outlook of Indian schools on cosmology at that time. For example, explanations are found that when humans first became inhabitants in this world, there emerged in sequence the era of perfect precepts, the Kali Yuga, Kriya Yuga, sorry, Krita Yuga, the era of keeping, era of keeping three precepts, Treta Yuga, the era of keeping two, Dwapara, Dwapara Yuga, and then the era of conflict, the Kali Yuga. The era of conflict refers to the present time. When humans have a lifespan of only a hundred years, it is also called the time of the spread of the five degenerations and is counted as an inferior age. The age of perfect precepts is when humans naturally practice dharma and do not engage in any immoral acts. The era when the first immoral acts arise in the world is the era of keeping three precepts and no longer the era of keeping all precepts. When two types of non-virtuous action arise, it is the era of keeping two. When every type of non-virtuous moral act arises, it is the era of conflict. On these explanations, there is general agreement among all Indian scholars. Okay, that was strange. And now let's do little exercises to sharpen your your wit, okay? To wit your sharp to wit your brain. Let's see, just need to find it briefly, sorry. While you're looking for that, I was curious about like when they talked about the sort of physical beginnings you know, starting with wind and all of that. And I was just wondering if, if I doubt it, but if, if there's any correlation that when they talk about in in our, in the mind and in the Alaya Vishnana, it's, they talk about almost like wind or stirring up that stirs up the, the in a sense, the seeds or whatever that cause things to manifest, right? And I just kind of wondered if there's any sort of, it seems like there's almost like a relationship between those, this notion of wind stirring and all of that. And the whether the uh, creation of the cosmos, cosmoses, whatever the cosmology could also be viewed as a stirring within the minds of beings. So that's why the wind stirs first, because the wind stirs everything up. I mean, there's sort of a chicken and egg thing that they, you know, brought up in terms of which came first, the environment. They say the environment and then the inhabitants, but then if it also relates with the karma of sentient beings, that implies that there's already beings, in, you know, in some way. So I, it, I don't know, it's kind of a little off the wall, but just a thought. Okay, 
So. Are there differences between schools' views on these cosmoses? Like, I mean, on these on the cosmology, like, is the do the Majamakas think of cosmology differently than? I don't think so. I don't think the I don't think the Madhyamakans are into cosmology. I don't think the Yogacharans are because the Yogacharans everything is mind. Well, right. That's kind of why I was thinking about all the stuff. Is that it seems like it? It's like do these cosmologies mostly relate with more the Vibhashika Sartantrika level? Uh, yes, but plus uh, also the Kalachakra and the Vajrayana level. Right, yeah. Okay. So Okay, so you remember your chart. Classification of phenomena objects equal knowable objects, existence established. Can you guys see this on the screen? You got your classification of phenomena, right? So objects is synonymous. The term object is synonymous with noble object, existent, established basis, bases, objects of comprehension, and phenomena. Okay? And objects are classified in terms of are divided between things, which are conditioned, impermanent, and specifically characterized phenomena, and then non-things, which are non-conditioned, permanent, and generally characterized phenomena. Which, which one has more phenomena, things or non-things? Things. things. There's more things than non-things. By a lot or? Yeah. Why do you say that? Because non-things are just, there's like a nameable list of them. In you're looking at the chart of the dharmas, right? Um, No, but the, I mean, non-things are like what, space and two kinds of awakening or something like that, or two kinds of cessation? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uncreated dharmas, things are space, path extinction and natural extinction. And uh, you're you're interpreting these three as being discrete dharmas. Um, it, it seems like my my understanding is that 
these two are groups of phenomena are um, actually um, phenomena that are experienced by people who achieve path extinction. That that phenomena that one one experiences through path extinction and the phenomena one experiences through natural extinction. And so you're assuming that that that, that experience, that phenomena is the same basically for everyone and there's basically three uh, non things. Okay. Give, given the context and this and the system and the explanations and so forth, I accept. I accept your response. Okay, things are classified in terms of matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. So, given that, what is the relationship between the following pairs of terms? Explain the pervasion for each according to the handout on the four relationships. Okay, so... Uh, I need to reshare. Let's see. So here's the four relationships. And this chart gives five, but the first one is that they are identical. P and Q are identical. And two and three are that one group includes completely the other group. And then four is that there's some portion of each group that overlaps with the other so you have this overlap area. And then the last choice is that there's no common locus between the two groups. And that's a way of referring to this situation is that there's no common locus between these two circles, these two groupings. Here there's a common locus here where they two overlap. Here there's a common locus where one is engalloped by the other, so to speak. And here there's a common locus of entirety where they are identical. Okay. So what is the relationship between things and object? Anyone? Are they identical? Is one included in the other? Do they have some overlap or is there no common locus? Things, things are a objects. subset. Things are a subset. So, um, things. The terminology you would say is that things are. Uh, sorry, which is the subject subset of which? Um, things are subsets of objects. Okay, so things are included in objects, and based on our collective. Collected topics chart. We have objects includes things and non-things. And so things, the relationship between things and objects would be the relationship of P would be things and all objects would be Q. Okay. What's the relationship between things and object of an eye consciousness? Object of an eye consciousness is included in things. 
objects of an eye consciousness are included within things. So here we have things. Things consist of matter consciousness and not associated formations. The objects of an eye consciousness are color and shape, and those included within matter, and matter was, is included within things. So I accept what's the, the relationship between things and matter. the same right we'll yes, just go for it same yeah same matter is included within things <clears throat> what's the relationship between matter and an object of any given mind i'm going to go with partially overlapped partially overlapped okay so uh eric has chosen choice two or three here and so in that case you have to no tell no, no two or three the Oh, oh, I'm not sorry. a subset. Yes, that I'm sorry. Here, there's a partial overlap. So, um, let's see. We say that um, some of some of what is included in one group is included in another group in the other group. So, in this case, you're saying that uh, some of the members of the group called matter are included in the objects of any given mind, but not all of them. So what oh, does wait. this mean? I might be wrong. <laughs> I think I'm... So then the question, well, that's good. Like just, for, just as an example, it doesn't matter right or wrong, but it's a good way to, to try to unpack the situation. So then the question is, you then have to, you then have to explain to us what types of matter are not an object of any given mind or what objects of any given mind are not matter well a, a mind can take a mental object which would right. not be matter okay so However, there's, there's a lot of I objects do... of, of a given mind that are not matter okay however upon reflection i think all matter can be taken as an object of mind so matter would in fact be a subset of the second group of the second group so you're changing your response to say that matter is included within object of any given mind yes yeah, so i failed the challenge i was unable to find matter you, you, you that, were just sacrificing yourself by yeah. intentionally giving an incorrect answer. I, as a moment as an educational moment I was, there you go there you go does does anyone disagree with eric's now revised response that matter is included within an object of any given mind. Okay, we accept. Okay, what's the relationship between the last moment of a candle flame and things? <laughs> they don't overlap. There's no overlap. They're completely exclusive phenomena. So, uh, no matter what kind of candle flame it is, the last moment of that candle flame is not a thing. Because why? Explain. Because it doesn't produce the next moment of its continuum. <laughs> it doesn't perform a function. It doesn't perform a function. The last moment of a candle flame. But... Isn't the last moment of a candle flame producing the function of illumination? 
And the last moment can be an object of mind for that matter, which is also a function. <laughs> Again, we have we have a, a bodhisattva uh, intentionally presenting a elusive response to churn up the you, ocean, to churn up the wind mandala. Oh, Morgan. If you looked at it the other way, yeah, and it wasn't a thing, then the second to the last moment of a flame wouldn't be a thing either. Oh, and then you get the and same problem with the third. Right. Where does it stop? Does it stop? It doesn't. It never stops. Okay, so we have, so it sounds like we have to agree that the last moment of a candle flame, which is this intentionally tricky phenomena, is indeed a thing. Do we agree on that? Do we agree that uh, if it's a candle flame, it's producing illumination? But does this mean that we have to, we have to adjust the definition of a uh, thing? to accommodate that this what's the definition of a thing um well if if we use the one that eric was talking about that which performs a function right or is observable by any given mind okay and so, so, and okay. so i i said it performed the function of illumination yeah <laughs> <laughs> But so, it's a tricky but the, one, though, but right? the, so the, the but I thought when we were reading before the the part about producing the next moment of its continua was that a required part or was that uh, kind of an either or? Ah, that's a, that's a good question. Let's. I thought that's where this came up before, it. as I recall. Wasn't that just in the Vibhashika version of the, the Abhidharma where they said that? I don't remember. I just remember that it came up in that context and we were asking about it then and here it came back yeah, to haunt yeah. us. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're in the world of Sautrantagism and we're taking as our Bible, this text called the root, the root text of uh, collected topics, the collected topics composed by Charlie Lama Tempa Jelson and his definition of a thing is that which is able to perform a function and here the meaning of the definition of a thing is that which is able to perform a function is as follows any phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific results such as later moments of its own continuum or consciousness apprehending that specific phenomenon perform the function of so here it's an or which means that 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 gives you the room for the uh, observability to serve the to make it meet the definition but i thought there was a place where it wasn't an or but i maybe i'm misremembering <clears throat> yeah i think so i think this was an this part was an additional aspect and it doesn't have the part that i was referring to of uh pro producing a function of light or doing something like burning or or you know the way that fire performs the function of burning but it's focused entirely on this uh, function of producing its own continuum but well no isn't a consciousness apprehending the phenomena isn't that uh, you know viewing light or seeing fire or whatever it might be 
such exactly that's what i was just getting to thank you morgan so i think such as is the the introduction of a list of options right well clearly there's an or so it, it means that you've got at least two options and the implication that there's other options that could be more specific to a phenomena these are general to all things generally speaking all things do this and uh, each phenomena also has its own particular function yeah i just it was the book that we are reading now have did they have a different definition I, that's what i was remembering i don't know maybe maybe you can look at that i'll as have to look at it another time i can't okay. find it now <laughs> the book that we're using okay the last moment of karma and things what is the last moment of karma that's like when you're exhausting your karma and becoming enlightened. I don't know. Or first boomy or something. I don't know. What is it? Yeah, let's skip that one. Ha -ha. Okay. What's the relationship between shape and color? No overlap. No overlap. Completely separate. Yes. Does anyone, anyone disagree? Well, isn't, I thought at one point we've talked about this and you said that because I always bring it up as those two have to be, you know, treated as the two things we see. And then I think you said that in some contexts they say shape doesn't really exist and it's all color or something like that. Yeah, I did say that, but our texts don't say that. And so I think we have to, you know, follow one sort of reference point. And uh, I think we have to view them as separate aspects, separate dharmas. Okay, I, I was following the gospel of, of Derek. <laughs> the classification of the form, sources, color, and shape. Form, form, source, and form constituent are... Shape and color have four possibilities. Something, The possibilities of something being both. For example, clouds, smoke, dust, and mist are both shape and color. <laughs> The possibility of something being a shape but not being a form, for example, short and long. The possibility of something being a color but not being a shape, for example, the primary color is white and red. The possibility of something being neither consciousness, something being a shape but not being a form. That's weird. Anyway, I think they're separate. I think I would go with Morgan's response. What's the relationship between color and object? Inclusive. Color is included within object, right? Color is included within thing because things are included with object and color is a type, an aspect of fat matter or form and matter is included in object what's the relationship between a white sheet of paper and a white conch shell is there any any uh, common locus no they're mutually exclusive so their whiteness is not a, a relevant factor that ties them together as having an overlapping uh, nature 
a white sheet of paper and the color white. Well, it's, it's the color white isn't the same as saying the set of things that are white, right? Um, that's correct. Yeah, that's it's not the same. So they would be exclusive. Yeah, I think. Not conjoined sound and the sound of a white conch. <laughs> Not conjoined with human intention, right? And the sound of a white conch. So uh, sound of a white conch, conch, conch. So those are exclusive. If, if conjoined means it's related to being produced by human? Yeah. Okay, so those would be... Those would be exclusive, right? Okay. Um, tangible object and color. Do I hear any ideas? How about, I'll throw out some choices. How about overlapping? Are some tangible objects colors and some colors tangible objects? No, I don't think colors are tangible objects. Tangible objects may manifest with a color. I accept. There's there's no overlap between tangible objects and colors. Tangible objects and form. Tangible objects are a subset of form. I accept. Tangible objects are included in form, which is a synonym of matter. Tangible object and object. Tangible objects are included in objects. Ice and water. <laughs> Ice is included in water. Ice is included in water. There's other types of water that are not ice. This sweet apple and the sweetness of an apple. Are mutually exclusive. The sweetness of an apple is a is a um, is the object of a, the taste faculty, and uh, a sweet apple is a form. So they're they're trying to trick you with the idea of um... yeah the continuity of sweetness as apparently being something. What are perceived by a human and pus perceived by a hungry ghost? <laughs> so those are fully overlapping, right? I mean, I'm uh, sure those are equal. Identical. That is Ident the, right. Sorry, same. That is the traditional view: is that water is perceived by a human and is perceived. Uh, uh, sorry, there's a substance that's perceived as water by a human, and that same substance is perceived as pus by a hungry ghost. <laughs> and let's see. Well, we're over time. Let's see one more. Uh, what's the relationship between sense faculty and matter? Sense faculty is a subset of matter. Is included within matter. Sense right. faculty and consciousness. Not uh, exclusive. There's no overlap. 
sense, I sense faculty and definiendum. We didn't really go through definiendum, but I, in length, but we went through it in summary. Definiendum is that which is defined. So an I sense faculty would be a, uh, included within something that's defined. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. I'm not sure. I think I think they're exclusive in that the I sense faculty uh, is is different from that the definition the referent of the definition of an eye sense faculty that the referent of the definition of an eye sense faculty is the generally characterized phenomena eye sense faculty but i don't know that's a good one i have to i have to look into this one right the question is what they're trying to get at here yeah it's yeah. fascinating these two are pretty obvious okay so uh, we'll do more next time <laughs> Any comments, suggestions, questions? What do we have next week? We have more cosmology and chakra. cosmos and the chakra, how the world ends. Um, so and channels, winds, yes. and drops. Oof. The de fetal development and the channel winds and drops. I'm suggesting we skip a whole bunch of stuff. I hope that's okay. And then we have the subtle body of the channel winds and drops. They got it in here. It's Vajrayana topic, so we're not supposed to do it. But hey, <laughs> who's, who's going to complain? Somebody's going to rat on us, right? <laughs> uh, but fetal, I don't, I'm not that interested in the fetal development. Are you guys? So I skipped all, the, all of those. Okay. You left in the one that has to do with channels, winds, and drops. Was that intentional? Yeah, because yeah, okay. I think the channel winds and drops, right. that one is okay. interesting and uh, theoretically potentially relevant for those of us that do Vajrayana practice someday. Should we dedicate the merit? Close. If we have a moment. But this Marimel and Tenonitions may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the radiant mist and bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Glad you survived Thanksgiving. We'll see. <laughs> see you. See you next week. Take care.